Hello, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome once again to the Changing Faith Podcast. Somebody just asked me the other day uh, how the podcast's going, and I've got to say, it's it's great. I'm having a great time doing this. I'm really enjoying it. The people who show up who are willing to be interviewed are amazing, and thanks to the many of you who reach out over email and on Facebook and even face-to-face to encourage me and say, hey, I really enjoy it. Um, that same person said, do you, when do you think you'll be done doing it? And I said, when I stop enjoying it, which means uh, there's going to be more episodes coming because I'm still enjoying it. So let's keep it going for a bit longer. And that brings us to today. The episode is titled, How the Bible Made Me a Heretic. Now, I mentioned on episode 30, which was titled the B-I-B-L-E, that I might say more about the Bible in future episodes. And today is one of those episodes. And I might add, today is one of those episodes because of the questions and the feedback that I got from so many of you after episode 30. And it kind of said to me, I need to keep going with this. I need to keep talking about this because apparently it, uh, it connected in a way for many of you that you email me. So if you want to email me, if you have questions, thoughts, things you want to share, you can email me at michael, that's M-I-C-H-A-E-L, michael at michael-hidalgo.com. I'd love to hear from you. So with that said, today is one of those episodes because a bunch of you did email me at michael at michael-hidalgo.com about episode 30, titled the B-I-B-L-E, which leads us to today, episode 33, which is how the Bible made me a heretic. And I want to share how the Bible has influenced me and the direction in which it has influenced me and a bit about why I am here today. And so you might ask, well, what do you mean like how the Bible has influenced you and where you are today? Where are you And the best answer I can give without trying to be coy in any way is, I don't know. I don't know where I am. I've been asked that question, like, where are you with regard to the evangelical church? I I don't know, truly. Wherever I am, it's not where I was, and I'm confident it's not where I'm stopping. And what I do know is there's a lot of us here, wherever here is, and the more I listen to and speak with and read from those who are near me, the more I realize that many of us got here because of the Bible and not in spite of the Bible, which is why I titled this episode the way that I did, How the Bible Made Me a Heretic. Those who have suggested that somehow I'm on a slippery slope, which in the words of one of uh, my good friends, don't worry, I'm wearing skis. In the words of another friend, when accused of being on the slippery slope, he said, I'm already at the bottom. Uh, I think those two responses are hilarious. But for those who have suggested I'm on a slippery slope or that I'm wrongheaded in my thinking or that I'm dangerous because I'm leading people astray or that I am, in their estimation, a heretic uh, and those who say to me, you've thrown the Bible away, I wanna, I wanna suggest that I'm actually where I am today for many reasons, and we'll talk about those, Uh, And one of those central reasons is not actually because I threw the Bible away. Rather, it's because I picked the Bible up. And in picking it up, I began reading and studying and asking questions and digging deeper and exploring further. The irony, of course, is the world I grew up in is the world that encouraged me and the people that encouraged me and told me to do this. And I'm grateful that this was encouraged because quite honestly, I've learned so much. And it's worth mentioning that there are some, as I already said, who have accused me and others of being apostate. And yes, that actual word has been used in reference to me, apostate, which, I mean, at that point, I feel like I've accomplished something. Like if I had a resume, maybe maybe I'd put that on there. But but I do want to point out that there are so many people who have encouraged me along the way, even those who still don't agree with me on everything. They have encouraged me, loved me, supported me, cheered me on. So today, I I don't want to spend time like bashing all of those people who've thrown rocks my way. Uh, I do want to honor those who've uh, just been supportive and loving and respectful and, and helped me along the way. 
even though today we may disagree on some things. Um, but what I really want to talk about is, is to share what led me to where I am today and how the Bible in particular got me there. And so I've tried to retrace my steps, and of course I'm not going to go through all of them, but I've tried to retrace my steps, and I've gone as far back as my senior year of college. Before that, I'm not sure I was asking any serious questions about God and faith and life and the Bible. So we'll start there, and then we'll move forward through 21 years of history. Um, it's pretty surfacy. I'm just going to tell you that, so we won't be here for, for that long. But with that said, senior year of college, 21 years of history of how the Bible has shaped and reshaped me. The year was 1998, and in a little town in Ohio, a young man decided to read the Hebrew prophets. I wish, by the way, I sounded more like Ron Burgundy, because if he was telling this story, it would be amazing. By the way, his podcast is ridiculous. Nonetheless, 1998, I was in college in a small town in Ohio, and I did decide to read the Hebrew prophets. And some of you might think, why would you start reading like when you finally start reading the Bible, why would you start with the Hebrew prophets? And I honestly did it as my kind of my own way of going, I'm not going to do it the way everyone's told me to. I'm going to start in a place where I don't think anyone else would start. It was like this whole individualistic kind of like weird kind of like being as rebellious as I could be when I start reading the Bible, I guess. So you may think like, so what? Millions of people have read the prophets. And so how did this actually start you in a new direction? And the reality was that growing up, I heard very little teaching on the prophets. It was mostly like around Christmas and Easter. And any teaching I did hear was often a reference to the prophets, not a teaching from the prophets, and it involved very few things. And one uh, of the things was that the prophets were there to tell the Israelites to stop fornicating and stop worshiping idols. Like that was kind of their main message to people in their day. Stop having to sex, stop being promiscuous, and stop worshiping idols and sacrificing your children to, to these gods. The second thing was how all of the prophets were ultimately prophesying about Jesus. And the third thing was how the prophets talked about the end times. Like think the Left Behind series, End Times. Like especially uh, Daniel. Like somehow Daniel was all about like somehow connected to the book of Revelation and everything that's going to happen someday down the road. Now, depending on how you read the prophets, those things may be true. And even in the Gospel of Matthew, he points to the prophets and says, look at what they were saying ultimately about Jesus. Um, but there's so much more in the prophets than sex and idols in Jesus in end times. And there, there's more than I even ever knew existed, not just in the prophets, but in the Bible. First off, the prophets are really bizarre. If you've not read them, they're, they're like a world unto themselves. There's poetry, there's ancient Near Eastern apocalyptic literature, and then there's the, the, the performance art, like God telling one prophet to cook his food using his own excrement as fuel. There's another story about a prophet who marries a prostitute. Uh, then there's uh, the death of all sorts of people, including women and children. It's not light reading, um, and it's confusing. It's, it's mesmerizing in some ways. And in the midst of all of that, what really stuck out to me was all of the talk of justice and restoration, the, the, that God's response to sin over and over. Yes, there's anger, but there's also this like ache in the heart of a loving parent and this longing that God has to restore God's people and restore a relationship with God's people. And in all of this, at the age of like 21, 22, I, I realized I had never one time heard a sermon about justice. Now, I had heard talk of God's justice demanding blood for my sin, which is incidentally not in the prophets. But I'm talking about justice for the poor, justice for the marginalized. Justice as in restorative justice, where all things are made right, where the high places are made low. And it was, uh, th these sermons and this talk about justice from the prophets was needed because of the corruption of the religious and the powerful who were in the land of Israel. 
And their message demanded justice and spoke endlessly of what should be done regarding the poor and the widow and the orphan and the immigrant in their midst. And at that time, I couldn't have told you any church within the tradition where I grew up that talked about any of this kind of of thing, about justice and poverty and immigration, none of it. I wasn't hearing about any of it. And the churches that I grew up attending poured uh, vast amounts of time and energy and money into their buildings, into their weekend services. You know, had these huge bands and lights and fog and the whole thing. Their youth programs. Like we used to go on missions trips and stay in, literally stay in four and five star hotels and sing and dance on the streets of Barcelona and things like that. This is all true. Um, Spent money on activities or retreats so we can gather together and um, hear about how everything's going to be okay in our life, or the four, five, six, seven things we can do to make things better in our life, um, and all the things that we shouldn't do, like drink and smoke and swear and have sex outside of marriage. And so I'm reading the prophets who are talking about justice, growing up in a world seeing all of this, and I recall thinking to myself, in a lot of ways, the churches I have been a part of seem to be very similar to the religiosity in Israel that the prophets were calling out. And I began wondering, like, is this why we neglected these books? I mean, are these the weightier matters of the law that Jesus talked about? Like, Jesus said, hey, like, don't ignore these things, but there's bigger fish to fry here. And he talks about justice. Uh, and, And so, I began listening to the prophetic message regarding God's attitude toward those who worship without justice. Like the prophet Amos says this, and speaking on behalf of God, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-ending stream. And what about Isaiah? He, he writes in speaking for God, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. This is what I was reading in the prophets. And I had never, ever heard language like this before. And I wondered at the time, what would they say to the church in America. Like if you were to import Isaiah and Amos, two two of the more passionate prophets, Ezekiel, into America, uh, what would they say to the people of God based off of the words that I was reading? And I I think maybe they would have said something like this, the size of your buildings, do you really think they are? I'm impressed? Consider the universe I have woven together. Your Sunday services have all the accoutrements for entertainment one could ask for, yet your laughter and your singing sound like nails on a chalkboard. Your Christmas concerts are worse than eating two-week-old ham, and your money that you proudly give for more staff so that you do not have to serve others is sickening. I hate your sermons. I hate your worship choruses because they are an insult to me, and your hymns are like vomit in my mouth. You argue and divide over worship style and the finer points of theology and ignore those who are starving in your midst. 
I care about your justice. I care about your concern for the poor, your defense of the defenseless, and the message of redemption that you perform and proclaim to the hopeless. Stop doing all this crap on weekends and humble yourselves and serve the poor, the hopeless, and the needy. Proclaim to them the love I have for them. Live in such a way that they know my justice deep in their bones, that they are aware of my provision, and they see my hope. Then, and only then, will your songs ever be a sweet, sweet sound in my ear. Can you understand, as this kid who grew up in a world which was all about the do's and do nots, mostly the do-nots in rules and rule-based and everything else, who had never read the prophets one time, never heard a sermon about the prophets, never talked about poverty, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the poor, none of that. I fall into these 15 books in the Hebrew scriptures and my mind was blown. And I remember initially being, like I just had this fire lit underneath me I was angry, I was excited, I was confused, I was curious, I was just all sorts of emotions. But one question dominated me, and it was this. If this was in here, like if the prophets were in here all along, and I was never told about it, and I never heard a sermon about it, then what else is in here that I wasn't told about? And this eventually led me to a second question. What have I been told is in here that actually might not be in here at all? In both questions, starting senior year of college and just after, both of those questions caused me to unlearn and to relearn so much about God and faith in the church. And by the way, the unlearning and the relearning is still a process I am walking through, and I hope I never stop walking through. And those two questions opened me up to questions like never before. And I point this out because the fact that the Bible led me to questions is important to name because for some people, questions are the equivalent to doubt. And doubt in many contexts within Christendom uh, is like turning your back on God. But for me, Questions are an essential part of the growth process, and that includes, by the way, doubt. Exploring the Bible for the first time in my life did not lend solid answers to everything. Actually, it raised questions, tons of questions, and I started asking those questions. And I am forever grateful for a pastor who is still a friend who very early on said to me, you're asking good questions, well done. Keep asking because good questions lead to great questions. Keep asking because good questions lead to great questions. And, and, and this is so true. I mean, think about kids for a moment. I don't know if you have kids. Maybe you've been around kids. Maybe you haven't been around kids. If you haven't been around kids, one of the things you might, uh, might not know is that Kids begin asking questions at the age of like three, four, somewhere in there, maybe, maybe, maybe two. Um, questions like, why is the sky blue? They just see things and they begin asking. Now, I have uh, three kids, and all of my kids from the age of three on have begun at, like they began asking questions. What's interesting is my kids who are teenagers right now are not sitting around saying things like, why are there clouds in the sky? Why do they float? Why can't you jump on clouds? Like a three-year-old would ask when you're flying in an airplane for the first time, when they think they can launch themselves out of a plane and play on these big fluffy clouds. Now, uh, my kids ask questions like, if the Bible talks about God speaking the universe into existence, why is there so much evidence that this whole thing started with a big bang. Like, do you see the difference in the question? Those are deeper, those are deeper, more powerful, thoughtful questions. Um, things like, hey, dad, do you and mom give money away? And if so, why? What compels you to give money away? Like, those, those questions are deeper and bigger and more profound. And, and yet, 
with kids, we're like, oh, that's great. Like, I've, I've never had anyone say, yeah, my son asked me about giving or my, my daughter asked me about the, the origins of the universe and was asking big cosmological questions. I've never encountered a parent who turns and looks at their kids and says, stop asking that. Those are dangerous questions. Because that would be an asinine response, wouldn't it? And yet, when it comes to faith, when it comes to God, who, by the way, often fashions God's self as the divine parent, both as father and mother in the Bible, and God speaks of us as children. When we ask questions, when we express doubt, when we are confused, there are some in this world who say, don't ask those questions. And they argue it's the lack of faith. And I say, no, 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 no. If we understand faith as trust, if we understand faith as fidelity, then questions are actually how we grow. Questions are good. Because what happens in life is in different periods of our life, we think the world works like this way, or God is like that or like this, and that life is going to offer us something if we do these things, or that what we believe, it just seems to work. And then there's like the big plot twist, or what screenwriters would call the inciting incident. Something happens, there's a broken relationship, a tragedy, or it's like wild success and it doesn't deliver all the things that we thought it would deliver. And we recognize that what got us to where we are at that moment is not and does not have the power to get us uh, beyond those new, get us beyond the new realities or even into the new realities. And what happens so often is when someone asks a question about a particular belief or particular theology or particular way of looking at a verse, the same old answer is given. And the person giving the answer, it's almost like this autopilot, might explain it a little bit more, but it's really the same answer. And the person giving the answer is often not listening to the new question that's being asked because the person asking it is no longer in the same place. And so this is where questions come from. And by the way, whatever vehicle got you to the place where you finally run up against this like new reality that's happening in your life, we need to give thanks for that vehicle. We need to honor how it got us to this place, but we also need to walk away and leave it behind, recognizing it's not going to bring us forward into the place that we're being called. Uh, I heard recently a, a story told by the Buddha who talked about like when you're walking through the woods and you come to a river, you build a raft and you take the raft across the river And once you've crossed the river safely and the raft is on shore, you don't pick up the raft and start carrying it through the woods. Of course not. It was there for a time and a purpose, and you leave the raft there. Hopefully, someone else is going to be walking through the woods, and they're going to come to the river, and they're going to be able to actually use your raft. So there's no reason to blow it up or to burn it or to talk about how terrible it is. It's going to serve a purpose for people who find themselves in the same place on the journey as you. And so when we ask questions, when we doubt, when we name our struggle to believe, we come to these places because something happens that we can't figure out. All of the answers we have up until this point have not prepared us for this. And this is, there's even times like in my life, and I've seen this in the life of faithful people, when you hit that, you begin accusing God. You like shake your fist at God. You say like, what the is going on? Uh, And by the way, this is what the psalmists do. So remember, I'm talking about how, like how the Bible has reshaped me. The Psalms are a prayer book that are given to the people of God to teach us what it looks like to pray honestly. And when the psalmists, when they ask questions in doubt, when they hit a situation in life that they're not prepared for, they not only ask questions, but they accuse God in their questions all the time. They don't say, hey, God, it seems like you're really far away. No, they say, why are you so far away? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? Will you ignore me forever? Are you deaf? Can you hear me? What's wrong with you? This is, those are accusations that are framed as questions. And again, the Psalms are what invited me to be real with God about all of this stuff. I always thought the Psalms were all about like the happy, clappy praise music, you know, make a joyful Lord unto the Lord, or to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. And by the way, 
There are moments where we should celebrate and we should clap and sing and dance and everything else. But I remember a guy who told this story about a friend, some friends of his. It was a husband and a wife. And he told this story framed like in a negative context. They're at home with some friends for dinner. There's a knock at their door. Door opens. There's a police officer, uh, two police officers standing outside their door who asked to come in. And they tell this guy's friends, a mom and dad, your son was just killed in a car accident. Now, the father, his response is to break out uh, like some songbooks or whatever. And we're like, we're going to sing. This is what we're going to do. We're going to sing. Now, this is not to judge the father. That may have been his first response. The mother, however, said, I am not going to sing. Now, the way I heard it framed was like, we should always be praising God. We should always be singing. And I'm like, no, no. Actually, the Psalms tell us that we don't have to do that. The Psalms tell us that when somebody dies, when tragedy strikes, when your world is falling apart, let it out. I mean, as a matter of fact, in John chapter 11, when Jesus weeps at the death of Lazarus, even though it seems like he might uh, be aware he's going to raise him from the dead, Jesus doesn't walk in and yell at everybody because they're they're crying and weeping and wailing. Jesus weeps with them. So she said, I don't want to sing. Good, don't. Tell God you think this is BS, that it's a load of crap, that it's terrible, that you got ripped off, that God let you down. Tell God this. This is what I learned from the Psalms. This is needed and this is good. And these prayers are recorded for us. And if you can't put words to your pain, the good news is there are words for you in the Psalms. Like Psalm 88. The psalmist writes, from my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. And that, by the way, is how the psalm ends. It ends with, Darkness is my closest friend. Somehow, the Psalms opened me up to telling and talking about doubt and questions, calling out BS, anger. Yeah, anger. Like, and not, by the way, um, you know, like really nicely manicured anger that we call righteous anger, even though there might be something simmering beneath. I'm talking about like absolute and total rage. Like Psalm 137 where it's a psalm written by people who have been exiled to Babylon. And at the end of the psalm, they're speaking to the Babylonians and they say this, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. That is some crazy, crazy, intense, angry, violent language. And what the Psalms teach us is everything belongs. And it's worth noting, by the way, half the Psalms are laments. Half the songs are, uh, Psalms are crying out to God, are expressing pain, doubt, uh, disorientation. Years ago during Lent, which is coming up just in a couple of weeks, we, we did an entire series our, our, during our Lenten season. We focused on the Psalms of Lament. And the whole point was telling people here at Denver Community Church, hey, you can be honest and you should be honest. And we had a fellow who was a part of our faith community at the time where he led a class during the week where he taught, they studied like the idea of lament in the Hebrew scriptures. And then he led people through writing their own psalm of lament. And it was revolutionary. People talked about how for the first time in their life, they were given permission to be honest about all kinds of wounds and disappointment and doubt and struggle. And they felt liberated by the fact that they could just name it and say it. And they all went around. It was like 50 of them. They read these Psalms of Lament out loud to each other. Psalms of Lament about their father passing away. Psalms of Lament about uh, the infidelity of a spouse. Psalms of Lament about being abused. I mean, just deep, deep, dark, heavy, intense things, shouting these laments out. This is what the Psalms have taught me, that you have to be honest. 
You can be honest. You can say whatever you want to God. And here's the deal. Sometimes you don't feel like singing. Sometimes we doubt. Sometimes you curse God. And God can handle all of it. I mean, think about this. When a friend is honest in front of you and unfiltered, when a friend just is gushing, venting, raging, whatever you want to say, I've had people come, partly because of what I do for a living, people will come and tell me just sacred, beautiful, deep, hard wounds, things, like all sorts of things. And there's always a sense that when someone is really honest in front of me, that what I'm receiving is, is a gift. This is precious. Like you don't roll your eyes at this. You don't crack a joke. Like this is, this is deep, intimate, vulnerable stuff. So when we talk about like being angry with God, I remember one night after a particularly difficult season, uh, I was in my car driving around late at night, just out for a drive because I needed to like blow off some steam, looking at the stars and saying to God, what the F are you doing to me? This is the tradition of the Psalms, like name it, say it, be honest. And there's this sense like when you get to that place with God, you're actually being deeply vulnerable and raw, and honest. And when people are like that to me, I always say to them with as much gratitude as possible, thank you for trusting me with your story. I wonder, I wonder, is it possible that God's like, hey, thanks for trusting me with that. You've been holding it in for so long. You see, when I talk about how the Bible, what it, how it's reshaped me, it's that like, you know what, I, I'm just gonna, I, I wanna be as honest as I can with God about wherever I am, even if I think the whole thing is crap, even if I think God may not exist, even if I think that all of this idea of the church thing is just the load of garbage, whatever it is, I'm gonna name it. And my hope is, is that God's like, man, thanks for sharing that with me. You see, the prophets got me asking questions and then the Psalms taught me questions are good and they're needed and they're a part of growth and questions lead to more questions. Now, let me make one comment here for those who maybe get a little bit uneasy about questions. Let me point out, we only stop asking questions when we believe that we have all the answers. Let me say that again. We only stop asking questions when we believe we have all the answers. And I don't believe that any of us, even with all human understanding combined, have even scratched the surface of this wild universe of ours and the God who holds it all together. I've learned to trust people who ask questions far more than people who pretend to have all the answers, especially, by the way, in my industry, like in the religious, church, faith, whatever industry that I'm in. Um, Because people who ask questions, that's a display of humility. I don't know, or can you explain that to me? Or I don't know what that means. Super humble. The let me tell you, or you should know, not so humble. So let me just say, none of us have the answers, which means we should probably keep asking questions. Because like I said, questions beget questions. And as I kept reading the Bible, the questions kept coming up over and over. Questions about heaven and eternal life. Like for the Jewish people, eternal life wasn't like a destination. It was something to be experienced here and now. And it seems like when Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God that he preaches about all through the gospels, he wasn't talking about getting out of here. And he wasn't talking about a thousand year millennial reign that's going to happen at some point down the road. But he was talking about a posture toward the divine, an acknowledgement of the reality of God's presence here and now in and through all things. And so like, Heaven and eternal life, like, the more I studied, the more I was like, wait, 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 I have some questions about that. I had questions about hell. I mean, we've developed a ton of theology about hell. It's interesting to note how literal we are when it comes to hell. Like, it is, it is dark, it's burning, it's an abyss, which means you're falling, there's screaming, there's gnashing of teeth, there's like, like, you're going to have, I've heard people say, God's going to create this body in you that can burn forever and feel pain forever without burning up. Um not in the Bible, by the way, and just like on and on and on, like how literal it is. But when it comes to heaven, we're not as literal because this, these are just pictures and poetry, but hell is like incredibly literal. But here's the thing. The biblical writers um, didn't have much of a theology about hell at all. They, they didn't. Like in 
you know, all the way through in the Hebrew scriptures, all the way through, I guess it would be the first century of uh, uh, BCE or CE, common era, AD. They didn't have much of a developed theology. And I've had people say to me like, man, you need to talk about more about hell in your preaching. Jesus talked about more than hell than heaven. And Jesus did talk about more about hell than heaven. But keep in mind, when Jesus talked about hell, he always directed his comments about hell and any threat of hell to the religious who were using the threat of hell to keep the non-religious in line. So maybe I should talk more about hell in my sermons because if you're showing up at church on a Sunday, you would qualify as religious. I had questions about the gospel. Like, what was Jesus preaching? It talks all the time about Jesus went out and proclaimed the good news. Jesus was preaching the good news of the kingdom. And I had heard that the gospel was like God... Um, you've offended God with your sin. You're separated from him. Jesus came to die the death that none of us could die, therefore bridging this gap between God and us. And if we accept Jesus's sacrifice and admit that we're sinners, then we get to God. But Jesus was preaching forgiveness of sins before any of this happened. And you never see on the lips of Jesus him going, hey, my, my father in heaven is super angry with you. And in a few years' time, I'm going to die. So if you can hang on until that point, uh, it's going to be better for you and easier for you. Um, because as soon as I die, then what I need you to do is to believe that I'm dying a death. Like, it, Jesus doesn't preach that. He preaches the good news about the kingdom. And Jesus, in talking about the kingdom and in preaching this good news, is telling stories about, like, a father running down the road and embracing his son, about a pearl. <laughs> like, I mean just this confusing kind of word pictures all the time. It's almost as though this thing was so big and so good and so true that he couldn't stop talking about it. So I began asking, like, well, what, what's the gospel? Is it bigger than just this small little plan that, is, uh, that, that we've created from, and picked out from some verses in the Bible? Is it, is it actually a far more expansive idea than we've ever thought of? I had questions about end times. Now, for some of you who are like, end times, really? This is still a big deal? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I was invited to be ordained at one point. Um, and in the ordination process, which is basically in a group of people or a denomination putting like their stamp on you as saying like, we affirm you for ministry, which really means you believe what we believe. We can get on with what you believe. And so <laughs> I got invited to be ordained and the person doing the inviting said to me, where are you at with regard to end times? And there's a, the whole idea of the millennium is a part of this thing. So there's like, you know, pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial. So he said, where are you with regard to the end times? I said, well, I'm a pan-millennial. And he's like, pan-millennial? Well, I've never heard of pan-millennial. I'm like, yeah, I believe it's all going to pan out in the end. And I thought uh, that was funny. Still do, by the way. Um, he didn't. He was like, well, if you're not a pre-millennial uh, thinker, then you probably shouldn't even apply for ordination. So again, end times, still a very, and by the way, this was just a few years ago. So this is like still a really big deal for some. And yet when Jesus is asked about like the times and the dates, he's like, hey, listen, don't worry about it. It's not for you to know. And so like when it came to end times, like the end times was a huge part of the world that I grew up in. And I realized not only was the schedule that was put together um, with like times and dates in order, it was all cherry picked out. Like it wasn't in there. But the other side of it was like, we're told not to care. So I, <laughs> like, I actually am a pan-millennialist. I think God being God can handle the whole thing. Um, that somehow this is all moving together toward unity, as it says in Ephesians 1, that it's gonna, <laughs> it's gonna pan out. So, um, Maybe I should start like panmillennial.com and get people to sign up. And our, our statement of faith is like, who cares? Um, it'll be fine. So like, it, but it gave me some serious questions about this. Questions about the LGBTQ conversation. I had heard forever, like, this is wrong. It's right there, plain as day. Then I started digging a little deeper. I'm like, actually, this is not plain as day. This is very confusing. This is, in the words of my friend Ken Wilson, a disputable matter. And so many people that I've had this conversation with uh, take big steps back and say, wait, 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 I haven't even studied this. Uh, and I say, yeah, no, 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 it's, it's not a slam dunk. It's very confusing. There's so much. Why do we apply context and history to so many things around 
um, Paul's letters, except for the few verses in which Paul seems to talk about it. And what about the fact that a good tree doesn't bear bad fruit? And like, how do we apply those words of Jesus to the LGBTQ discussion? Because the way the church has treated the LGBTQ community is not producing good fruit. So if it's a bad tree, well, those things are supposed to be cut down. So what does that do for it? And then, of course, I had questions about the Bible itself, which I talked about on episode 30. I had questions about human nature. Are we really born sinners? Um, like, is, is original sin, as John Calvin describes it, and neo-Calvinistic theologians describe it, like, that's, is, is, that's true? Because you, you really have to take some, like, running leaps uh, over the text and pick up a few things from Romans 5 into Augustine and then John Calvin to even, to even get there. Um, people say things like, well, you know, we are by nature deserving of wrath. Well, yeah, that's from Ephesians chapter 2, except for the fact that the word deserving is nowhere in the Greek. It's an addition into the English that seems to represent more the theological opinions and perspectives of the translators more than it does the actual Greek. So, like, I have all these questions, you know, like hell, heaven, what the gospel is, why did Jesus die, and LGBTQ, end times, about the Bible itself, about human nature, you know, like just small, insignificant theological categories. <laughs> and so I started digging in more and more, and the more that I dug into these things, the more I saw not only all there is to know, but also how much I don't know and all that we cannot know and we never will know. And I suppose we could do a podcast on every one of those things I just named. We could probably do several podcasts on all of those things I just named. But what I realized was how much, I, um, how much played into all of this and all of these beliefs other than the Bible. There's a great book titled Beyond Foundationalism by the late, great Stanley Grenz and John Frankie. And it helped me see how much we bring to the Bible every single one of us does this. None of us are immune. We are just not aware of all that we bring to the Bible most of the time. There's the story about two young fish uh, swimming one day because they wouldn't be <laughs> walking. Two young fish swimming and an older fish is swimming past them and says, how's the water, boys? And the two young fish look at each other and go, what's water? What's, <laughs> what's water? And this is how it felt for me. Like, wait, what? There's water? Like, I thought we just read the Bible. No, 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 no. There's water. And we're often so unaware of the water we're swimming, swimming in as we come to the Bible. And I point this out for three reasons. First, because those who crafted ideas, theology, and beliefs before me did not create what they did in a conscious effort to arrive where they did. And they also didn't do this in a cultural vacuum. And I want to be careful not to assign evil intent or impure motive or anything else to those who laid the groundwork that I walked on uh, to arrive at the Bible my senior year of college. Like all of us, they were influenced by their place in time, by their space in this world, or we could say by their zip code. They were uh, informed by their education, their skin color, their gender, and a host of other things. And so remember, it's not helpful to demonize those who came before us. Yes, we can acknowledge that they may have been misguided, but sitting around and complaining about them nonstop and rolling our eyes, it's just not the most helpful use of our energy. And remember, when we come to the Bible, as I did in 1998 in that small town in Ohio reading the Hebrew prophets, I did so with as much bias, conscious and unconscious, as any other person who's ever come to the Bible. I was influenced by my education, by my upbringing, by my religious world. I mean, just the fact that I was interested in the Bible enough to pick it up says a lot about my religious upbringing. I was influenced by my gender, by my place and time, my zip code, my socioeconomic reality, on and on and on. This is my way of saying my convictions, my beliefs, and my doubts, what has reshaped me, all of the questions, that's all a product of my particular place in a particular culture just as much as those who came before me. I am in no way better or more enlightened than anyone else when it comes to reading the Bible because I'm still carrying all of my filters. I'm just in a different place and in a different time. 
And I would never have ever gotten to where I am without those who've gone before me on whose shoulders I stand. Which means as much as I can say, I read the Bible and I learned, or I read the Bible and it reshaped me, it is of utmost importance to remember I read the Bible through a particular set of lenses and that led me to certain thoughts and opinions and ideas that were a departure from where I had been before I started reading. I don't think I'm 100% right and I don't think anyone ever has been. And I don't think those with whom I disagree are 100% wrong. And I don't think anyone has ever been 100% wrong. What I hope for is that others and I and you who are listening, that we would be faithful in our pursuit of understanding, learning, growing, and being reshaped. For if we are faithful, we will be more humble. If we're faithful, will be more humble. And so I want to point out, like we're in, we're swimming in water. And I pointed out for three reasons. Number one, because those who came before us, they, they were attempting as best they could to understand the Bible out of their time in their place. I pointed out because we all do this. And I pointed out because it's tempting to think that somehow like we finally arrived. Nope. But if we are faithful to the Bible and lay groundwork like those before us, we will provide steps for others to walk so that they can take this whole thing to an even healthier and more helpful place than us. Now, back to the theological questions I raised. I have deconstructed, I have reconstructed, renovated, demolished, rebuilt, and added on for as long as I've been thinking about these things. And initially... I was not aware of how this was received by people until one day, I was in my 20s, I was preaching, I was on a platform, I was still in Michigan. And in my naivete, I said, I think theology is fluid. And there was an audible gasp in the room. And it immediately told me something, uh, or immediately told me this is something I probably should have weighed more carefully before I said it. Now, in my mind, I say this because I wasn't the first one to read the Bible and have it change my mind about things that I believed. And the things that I no longer believed were the very things people who had read the Bible before me came to believe because they read the Bible. And there were things that people believed before them. And so theology, as I had understood it and still understand it, has always changed. And this is a good thing. But saying this out loud from a platform brought fear, and that led to a whole host of things I never expected, and it taught me a lot of things. And that one of those things is this. We have confused theology with the Bible. So when I read the Bible, I'm not reading a theological textbook. This is one of the things the Bible taught me. Like when I'm reading the Bible, I'm reading about stories and interactions and just these complex narratives and poetry and apocalyptic literature. I'm not reading a theology book. And so I point this out because we seem to have woven theology and the Bible together in a cord that many believe can never be broken or severed. And this is why many use the term biblical theology. As the thinking goes, if you disagree with one's theology or suggest it's not as solid as they think or that it might be fluid, in their mind, and this is important to keep in mind, they they think you're not just making a statement about a set of beliefs, but you're now talking about the Bible. And because you're talking about the Bible, you're talking about God who wrote the Bible. So when you disagree or say their theology is eh, questionable, you're now, like you're questioning and defying God. And so you say to me like, whoa, 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 come on. I mean, isn't that strong? Isn't that a bit of an exaggeration? And I, I say, no, no, it's not an exaggeration because this is what many have said to me and others who've questioned certain theological beliefs, that you are denying scripture. You are trying to make God more palatable. And again, by the way, this is nothing new. It always helps to look back. If you begin again, reading the Bible, read through the New Testament. One of the things I learned was this. The New Testament is the earliest record we have of people reinterpreting and interpreting the Hebrew scriptures or what we would call the Old Testament. So much of the New Testament is composed of people trying to make sense of what happened in and through the person of Jesus. And for the record, we're still trying to figure that out. 
Uh, and, and there's several disputes recorded, theological disputes recorded, arguments, people arguing for one idea uh, in the New Testament. And within a few generations of the biblical writer's death, the, the church leaders who were left behind after them, or who came after them, I should say, they were debating and arguing and disagreeing about theology. You even see divisions in the church, like in the church in Rome that Paul is writing to, in the church in Corinth that Paul is writing to. Theology has been in a near constant state of change for centuries. And this is because theology, in its most literal meaning, means words about God. Faithful people attempt to express in a way that honors their understanding of God in the text. They attempt to express their understanding of God in a way that's faithful to how they understand God and how they understand the Bible. But it's important to remember that this is a second order discipline, meaning the Bible, we could say, is first order, and we take something from the Bible partially. We also draw from our time and our place in the world and our, like all these other things. Uh, and then we create this theology. But it, it must never be confused with the Bible. And so often we unconsciously do this. Like if we have a belief, we're like, hey man, it's right, it's right here. And so if someone disagrees with your belief, they're disagreeing with, with the Bible. Um, and so I think it's important to remember, no, no, they're not the same. And in the event that we examine something or reconsider it from a new angle or we bring new questions, we must be willing to allow for theology to grow and mature and be reshaped, never forgetting this is in keeping with the history of the church. It's nothing new and it's normal and we don't all agree. And by the way, this is okay too, because like I said earlier, we're not all wrong and we're not all correct. Which brings me to the last thing I wanna talk about that I'm learning by reading the Bible. And that's this. We often do not allow the Bible to be what it is. The Bible is an ancient Near Eastern collection of books. And often, we try to force fit it into a modern Western kind of book. Like, like we look at it through this modern Western lens. And what we fail to see is that the writers of the Bible, they understood the world, they understood the universe, they thought about God and one another and all kinds of things. They thought of them in a very different way than we do. And I point this out because it helps to remember they were not writing a book for modern Western thinkers. That's not to say that the book is not still alive and beating and, and giving us something, but it helps to remember they're not writing a systematic theology book. This is why when we come to the Bible, it's often vague and confusing and mysterious and difficult and confounding. And if the point was to have everything nailed down into nice, neat propositional statements that capture the substance and essence of our beliefs, we would think that God and God's infinite wisdom would have given people somewhere between 10 and 15 statements about the most important, essential, foundational beliefs we should hold to. But even a casual reading of the Bible, you realize none of those things are there. And while many insist there is one correct belief about this or one correct belief about that. And incidentally, the one correct belief is always what they happen to believe. But what I'm learning is that many who think this way or teach this hold to a belief that with regard to church history is often pretty new. And they forget that if they had held the beliefs they hold now, if they held those beliefs a thousand years ago, they might be the ones that were called heretics. They might be the ones who were burned at the stake. And yet now they hold to a belief that may even be just a couple of hundred years old and they're calling other people heretics for challenging their belief. And what's fascinating is it's as though they almost forget that 1800, for 1800 years of church history before them, People were thinking different things. Why? Because people gave themselves over to the Bible and they were challenged. People gave themselves over to the Bible and they saw that this was a confounding, mysterious book that had like unbelievable, infinite depth that they could give themselves over to. And what I'm learning 
is that the Bible does not first and foremost invite us to systematic theology, but instead it invites us toward wisdom, toward humility, toward engagement, toward transformation, toward love. More and more, I'm not coming to the Bible to prove something, to find out why I'm right, to figure out why others are wrong. Instead, as I read the Bible, and I remind myself over and over and over about what the Bible is, when I remind myself to let the Bible be what it is, what I find is it's almost as though the Bible is reading me at times. I don't know how else to say it. Uh, and, and when I allow it to do its work on me, I'm more influenced by all it has to offer. See, I, I came to the Bible years ago looking for answers to prove things wrong, to justify myself, to find arguments to support my beliefs. But over time, as it's done its work on me, uh, I, I've discovered wonder, beauty, joy, explosive commentary on the world in which we live on. I've been challenged. I've been uh, awed. And, and I love it more than ever. You see, reading the Bible has not shut me down. You see, some of us, we, we can come to the Bible looking for the final word, looking for the singular answer. And, and when we do that, we come to the Bible in a way that shuts us down or closes people down or like solves arguments. But as I am in the process of learning and reading and studying and just simply enjoying the Bible, over and over, it's opening me up to the arms wide open love, the inclusive love of God. It's inviting me deeper into the beauty of the world in which we live, to the mystery of this universe that science is still barely scratching the surface of. It's telling me about who God is, who I am, who we uh, as humanity, who we are. I'm learning every day how all of this fits together and how the Christ permeates all things, or as Paul puts it, that Christ is all and is in all. And the further I go into it, and the deeper I dive, and the more expansive I see this whole deep reality actually is, the more often I find myself, well, being called a heretic. And for those who called me this, I want to point out these are the same people who insisted on me reading the Bible, on understanding it. And I am forever grateful that they did that because it's reshaped my life and so much of what I believe and my understanding of God who is love and led me to be comfortable with not knowing and being invited more deeply into the mystery of who God is and was and will be and this miraculous collection of books that in some way has a pulse and lends new life and breath. It's vague and unclear and invites us into conversation with it to discern, to engage to be challenged, and ultimately, this insistence of people that give yourself over to the Bible, this ultimately has led to my transformation. And so I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful, uh, forever grateful, for the pastor who cheered me on when I began asking questions. And my hope is that someday I will learn to ask better questions, for our answers can only be as good as the questions we ask. I'm grateful for the many friends and brothers and sisters who've joined with me on this journey, challenged my thinking, sharpened my insights, softened my heart, corrected my opinions, deepened my understanding. These are the people, by the way, who remind me, don't read the Bible alone. I mean, you can read it alone, but dive into it, sort through it, think through it in community. Always do this with a group of people. Even, by the way, do it with people with whom you disagree. I think if you're all just in a room and you all agree and you're all reading the same sources and you're all thinking about the same things, it's more boring that way. Be with people that you would say, no, I'm not sure I agree with you. It actually makes it better. It, it sharpens your own thinking. It broadens your own thinking. They bring things that you never would have thought about. Uh, and I'm thankful for people in my life who do this for me, all so I can continue to learn what Jesus said everything is all about. And that is love. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment is, he said, well, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your, uh, all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, all the law and the prophets or all the scripture hangs on these two commands. By the way, another rabbi named Hillel 
who came before Jesus, is credited with saying when asked about like, hey, what is your faith all about? Um, he said this, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole of scripture. The rest is commentary. Go and study. The rest is commentary. Go and study. What I've learned about reading the Bible is that if it doesn't lead us toward love, we need to study. What I've learned in reading the Bible is that it's all commentary on how we can learn to love God and love others. And my hope for you is that you will go and study, not so that you can know more or prove others wrong or prove yourself right. Remembering that what the Apostle Paul says is that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. No, my hope is that you would go and study so that you may come to know love and in doing so, come to know God in a way that transcends explanation and cannot be easily explained for in doing so. When you come to know love, when you come to know God, and when you come to be known by God, you will no longer need to be right, you will no longer fear being wrong, but you will discover the joy of simply being in and with God. But with that said, as always, much love and peace be with you.